0: The scripture lesson today is taken from the book of James. As Pete mentioned, we're going back to the book of James to finish up there. And I'll be reading in the fifth chapter, the first six verses, and they're challenging verses. Be ready. James, chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And this is the word of the Lord. Be to God.
1: You know, I love it when people say to me, Oh, you know, the. Old Testament so intense, and the New Testament so easy to understand, and so easy going. Yeah, right. Uh, before, we, before we get started, I want to mention two things. Tonight is a new members class, our second class. If you weren't able to be with us uh, last week, or maybe your schedule didn't allow it, we would love for you to join us again this evening at 6 p.m. right out here in the Welcome Center. And child care is available, but please uh, come and check in with me uh, before you leave today. And we would uh, love for you to come and be with us. We have new members class. We have some uh, students who have gone through uh, the new members class as well that will be joining us later this month. Yesterday, we had a, a beautiful celebration uh, of hope, the resurrection, with our dearly departed brother, Ed Henderson. And uh, many of you were there. If you weren't able to be there, it was a, a beautiful uh, celebration of his life, and he uh, asked that The attention to be put not on himself, but pointed towards the Lord, and I I pray that we we accomplish that. Uh, I want to honor uh, his memory by seeing that his uh, parents-in-law, Reverend and Mrs. Uh, Chow, are here with us this morning. So thank you for being with us and honoring us with your presence for worship this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to your word now, and we see this intense word that uh, your servant James has for the church uh, we believe, Lord, that you have given him this word uh, and that it's not only a word uh, for the context in which it was first read, but even now, Lord, you have, a, you have it for us today and for our own context and for our own lives. And so, Lord God, we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives and the life of this church and that I would be your faithful servant, Lord, in fulfilling uh, the call to preach the gospel in all seasons. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, if you haven't been with us, hey, hi Kelly, hi. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we are returning to the book of James. We started way back in June 2016 with a study of James' faith plus action. And then we took a long hiatus, and now we're returning to the final chapter in his letter to the church. Written by Jesus' half-brother around 48 to 49 A.D., James wrote to Jewish Christians meeting in house churches to encourage them to live bold lives of faith. You have faith, you have things that you believe, you've got to put them into action. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Sometimes known as the Proverbs of the New Testament, the book of James practically and faithfully reminds Christians how to live with integrity and and isn't that timely for us today that that we all live with integrity if we say that we believe something that we live it out for the world to see true for for you for everyone and especially for for leaders and throughout the letter James reminds those that are in leadership watch what you say watch how you live and live with integrity His conviction is that saving faith transforms your life. There ought to be a change that's noticeable, that's obvious, that's unmistakable with a person who said, I'm no longer going to live this way. I'm dead to that old life. I'm going to live this new life in Christ. It'll show up in your conduct, it'll show up in your thinking. And the words that you speak, and the actions you take. So saving faith, in, in James' mind and his theology, saving faith is an alive faith for those that are Christ's followers. In the book of James, there are only 108 verses. And in those 108 verses, James packs 54 imperatives. 54, you gotta do this, you, you gotta do that. Essential core values and actions for Christians. And so I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, been with us, or maybe it, your, your memory's kind of laxed on what, where we were several months ago, go back, read the book of James, chapter one through four, catch up with us as we begin this series that will lead us all the way actually through this month, but also in the month of June. So the book of James is a very practical guide in scripture of living authentically for Christ. Now, in in most every other letter in the New Testament that I can think of, the theme of the letter comes very early on in the book. Think of of Romans, chapter 1, 17, 16 to 18. That's the, the theme of the whole rest of Romans. You can find it right in the first chapter, just as one example. James is a little different. James waits till the very end of his letter, the final two verses, to tell you and me what's it all about. What, what's the driving force? What, what's the framework to understand these 54 imperatives? Look at with me if you still have your Bible open. Verses 19 and 20 summarizes the whole letter this way. He writes, quote, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the whole letter is based on these verses. It summarizes all these imperatives. Uh, James says, listen, church, if someone wanders from their faith, they're, they're not living with integrity. They're saying one thing, but their actions are showing another they're being a a poor witness for Christ. In fact, if they are beginning to deny Christ, wandering from the truth, if you bring them back, you've saved them. Of course, God saves a sinner. He's saying this is this powerful reminder of what we're all to do, and really, in fact, what James is doing in writing this letter, encouraging Christians to, to come back from wandering and to stick with walking with the Lord. So James is, is calling them forth to continue in this work that he is doing. So the, the whole letter is meant to call the Christian community to action in helping those who've fallen into ethical sins or other kinds of sins. He says a multitude of sins that are covered in the book. So keep that in mind as we get into chapter 5. And, and Brian just read, read this passage. Yikes! That's really intense, isn't it? He lays out a scathing indictment of the rich. Now, who are the rich in this context? Is he talking about me and and you? In the context at Nielsville, we are a very diverse congregation. Uh, Socioeconomically, we're diverse. We come from very many different places. But, But in reality, we are a rich people. That, the fact that we are living in this county makes us richer than most of the world, does it not? The fact that you have a house or an apartment, hey, you have a roof over your head. You have clothes, more than one pair of clo- clothes to wear. You're rich. And so we have incredible advantages, don't we, in being in this country. If, we've, if you were an immigrant and you immigrated to the United States... You are rich by comparison. And so, is that who James is talking to? Is he writing to you and to me? Somebody's saying, Well, Pastor, you already took the offering. Is this a stewardship sermon? No, listen. James is writing to the rich of his time. The question is, is he writing to rich members of his church, those that are wealthy? Those that he writes to later on or in other places in, in the book of James where he's reminding uh, the people of how they're to tr- treat one another and not to show special favoritism to those with more advantages. So who is, Paul, who is he writing to? I don't think James is writing to wealthy Christians here. As I said, he's addressed them in elsewhere in the letter of not showing favoritism. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 1. Remember the the theme that we read just a moment ago at the end of the book uh, that the theme is helping fellow Christians who've who've fallen or who are struggling to have integrity in their faith. And now look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, note, he doesn't say, Come now, you rich brothers or sisters. He doesn't refer to them in in any way like that as he does elsewhere. He just refers to them as, you rich. And what's the imperative? Repent? Change your ways? James does not say come back to the fold. What's he say? He says weep and howl! Like the miserable wolves that you are. He doesn't talk about repentance He's pronouncing judgment. And so Paul, uh, James is not writing to Christians here in this context. He's exposing the sins of these non-believing wealthy people. In their handling of their money, without regard to God, they are being indicted on at least four counts that we'll cover in our passage this morning. And James is anticipating Their judgment in these verses, not their salvation. The question still remains, why would James address unbelieving people who are not only rich, they are exploiting poor people in this letter about faith plus action? I mean, does he really think that these people are going to be the ones who will read this letter? Probably not. They won't read this letter, let alone will any of them even know who this James is. So why put it in the letter in the first place? The purpose, I believe, is not to teach the rotten rich about the error of their ways, the way they're taking advantage of the less fortunate. The purpose, listen, is to show his Christian readers on the receiving end of their ungodliness what God thinks of it. What God thinks of the way they're being treated. It's the same way in the Old Testament uh, prophecies. The, the prophets would use a re, this rhetorically calling down God's judgment on the bad guys. And in the same way, James is kind of channeling his inner Old Testament prophet by saying, this is what God thinks of the way you've been treated. You think God isn't listening? You think they won't get their comeuppance? This is what God thinks about what you are experiencing. And he wants Christians to overhear what God would and will say to these rich who are giving them such a hard time. Why would that be important? Yes, they're suffering, but what else might be going on in the life of a poor Christian in this first century who's being exploited in their heart, in their spirit, And the way they they live out their faith with integrity. What might be happening? Could they be tempted to sin? Might they be tempted to envy those rich people? Look at the way they live. Interesting, in this context, it's the, the wealthy farmers. Not really what we would understand in our own context, right? But the wealthy exploiters are farmers. You would envy them. If only I could live like they live. If only I could have as much as they have. And they might not feel sorry for them as you and I might feel. In fact, they not only feel envy, they covet what they have. They aspire to have what they have. Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. And then what might that also happen in the life of a Christian? That they would grow bitter. That the very rich have so much more materially. That these young young church coming together... And these poor Christians coming together would envy during the day. They would covet. They would grow bitter. And then they'd come to their humble little house church and say, well, what do we have? What do we have compared to the wealthy and the rich? And so James wants to warn the church and help them see how incredibly dangerous it would be to be in the same position as these great wealthy uh, non-Christians are. This past week I had a pastor's meeting. We hosted a so wonderful to have over 20 leaders from our community and our staff here at Nielsville put on a wonderful spread and we had a group of pastors who are part of a, a, a group called United in Action, the meeting in the past few months, uh, pastors wanting to address racial reconciliation issues in our county, especially in Upper Montgomery County. It began with a couple of African-American pastors and a couple of Caucasian pastors sitting down at breakfast and saying, we need to do something as a church. What are we going to do? And they realized the first thing that they needed to do is to pray and to get to know one another and to understand the issues that are faced in the church. And by the time we hosted, we had African-American, Caucasian, uh, Asian, and Hispanic pastors and church leaders all together talking about these issues. Seeing how the church should take a stand uh, in our community. And, and heaven forbid another incident happens in our county as we've seen elsewhere in the nation. How would we as the church respond if that were the case? And my n- new friend Julio, Pastor Julio from Grace Community Church that meets at Sally Ride uh, Elementary. They're worshiping right now. That He said they're going to be praying for us today. So we're going to pray for Grace uh, Community. Jamie, put that on your prayer list. Grace Community. Uh, Julio wanted to share about privilege. Privilege. I'm thinking, as he's stepping up and and I'm getting to know Julio, I'm thinking he's going to talk about white privilege. And as a white man, I have tremendous privilege. But that's not what he did. He's a first generation uh, immigrant from Central America. He talked about the privilege that he has as a pastor. First, that he speaks English and that he was able to go to school here. Uh, in the United States, and go to graduate school, what great privileges he has. Then he looked around the room, and I think we had uh, three sisters uh, there that are leaders, and he said, what a privilege being being a man compared to women in ministry. He talked about the privilege that he has when he goes to the elementary school on Sunday mornings for worship, how easy it is for him to walk up the stairs and open the door, the privilege of being able-bodied. And the point of this, of pointing out all the other forms of privilege that he sees through his own eyes, was a call for humility. And it was a call and an encouragement to all the pastors there to see and identify the great privileges that we have and opportunities we have to lead our people to see the great opportunity for the gospel. And that's what James is doing here. To help his people see the great privilege and opportunity they have in their context. And to not want, definitely not want, what these rotten rich people have. John Calvin, in his commentary on this very passage, wrote this. Quote, James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. Couldn't say it better myself. Now listen, it's not the wealth that's the issue, but what is done and not done with the wealth. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so the focus is gaining wealth in an ungodly manner and making money their God and then exploiting others. And so there are at least four indictments in these verses that James lays out. And let's look at those. Look at verse 2 and 3. James indicts them for hoarding. For hoarding. It's mine. He says, your riches are rotting you out. Your garments are mothied. And look at verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion is the evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. He's referring to H-E double hockey sticks. And what did Jesus talk about more than anything else in the Gospels? Hell. What was his second most popular subject of conversation? Money. And so Jesus' half-brother is just following right along the line, warning the people by showing the what God thinks of hoarding, thinking of of. This money being only for themselves, have more and more. He indicts them for hoarding. Number two, look at verse four. He indicts them for fraud. These landowners are exploiting and defrauding the workers. They haven't earned this money honestly, they are taking advantage of those that are working for them. And James says, The Lord of hosts has heard your cry. This is very intense. Number, number three, verse five, James indicts them for self-indulgence. Living luxurious lives, living lives of self-indulgence. And what a, what a powerful uh, prophetic image of them being fattened up for the slaughter. <laughs> They're, Keep eating. Go ahead. Three meals a day. And when my poor Christians are having no meals for a day or two, you're being fattened up. For this slide, these these are evocative, powerful word images that these people will never hear. But it's for the minds and the hearts of the Christians sitting there in such difficult circumstances. He indicts them for hoarding. He indicts them for fraud. He indicts them for self-indulgence. And finally, he indicts them for murder. Verse 6. Now, not murder, literal murder, but murder in the sense that they have stolen the livelihood of, of these Christians. These Christian men and women want to to do an honest day's work, and they've stolen their livelihood from them. They've labored for nothing. And James wants the Christians to know, God hears your cry. This prophetic language for those under indictment by God for when the day of the Lord arrives. James is saying, that day is coming soon. So what's our takeaway from this passage? Number one, we ought not envy the rich, but pray to see the needs of all. That's the first takeaway. Don't envy the rich, but pray to see the needs of all around you. Number two, we need to manage our resources with integrity. Whatever resources you have, you need to use them in an honest way, in a way of integrity that brings glory to God. And so we need to ask the same questions that are being asked in this passage of ourselves and not simply point the finger at whomever we think are are the bad guys out there. Ask ourselves these very questions. And I ask myself this question as one who is incredibly blessed and privileged so, Peter de la Santina asks himself, Do I hoard money or resources? Ask yourself, Am I guilty of over accumulating wealth? How much is enough or too much? Have I ever defrauded someone? Am I deceptive in my financial dealings? Have you ever had something like, Well, no one will notice? Ah, just. Rounded up to the nearest ten. This is asking us those questions. Am I being deceptive in my financial dealings? Have I succumbed to the culture of self-indulgence? Are you kidding me? I just had a half pint of, of Ben and Jerry's and went back and bought two more at the store. Self-indulgence? Oh, I say that a little kiddingly, but We need to ask ourselves this question. Have we succumbed to the culture? Has it just become second nature while everyone else has so much, how about I get mine? Have I taken away another's livelihood? So these are the questions we need to ask. Not not to envy the rich, but to see the needs of others, to manage our resources with integrity. And third and finally, I'll end with this. Worldliness and wealth are areas of high risk when it comes to walking humbly with your God. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again slowly. Worldliness and wealth are areas of high risk when it comes to walking humbly with your God. After the scene with the rich young ruler, what did Jesus say? The rich young ruler walked away sad because he had so much. He said it is easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, one who's succumbed, to the self-indulgences of this world, worldliness and wealth, to enter the kingdom of God. A hundred years ago, J.C. Ryle, an a, uh, Anglican bishop in England, I think, how, how contextual can that be? Listen to these words. I put them on the screen because the language is sort of old-fashioned, but this will, will really, it really hit me. He, he wrote this in commentary of that passage in Matthew of the rich young ruler, And in reference to James 6, he writes this. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible. How many Bibles do you have at home? All, all our talents. Whence came these things? Where did they come from? What hand bestowed them? Who, who gave them to you? Why are we what we are? Why are we not the worms that crawl on the earth? Not kind of line that you're going to hear in a seeker-sensitive church, but I'm sorry, that really hit me. Why are we not worms that crawl on the earth? Why? There is only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a what? Loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. Let this thought sink deeply into our hearts. Everything you have is on loan from God. You are God's stewards of what God has given to you and his debtors. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 and 21, and I'll read from the King James, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so, Lord, may that word be sunk deep into our hearts. And may we be reminded where our treasure is, O oh God. That our treasure is not in material wealth and possessions and, and things of this world. But, Lord, it is all on loan from you. That we are to be stewards of it. And debtors to you, for you sent your Son, who gave up his position in heaven and humbled himself to come and be one among us, and then to suffer the shame, even death death on a cross. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, Lord, for all who claim the name of Jesus, who are invited to this table, Lord, we pray that you would feed us now this gift from your table to us, not for our own benefit, not to fatten ourselves up, but, Lord, then to be using that energy and that opportunity and that, indeed, yes, privilege and talents you've given to us for your glory and for your good purposes. Amen. Please join me in the great thanksgiving.